Thank you, choir, for that powerful reminder of who we are and who God is. When I came in and saw that the whole choir was here, I said, oh, wow, the whole choir's here. And one of the choir members says, yep, we're here because we have the perfect anthem to celebrate the four-part series coming to an end. <laughs> and then he caught himself, I mean, to celebrate the whole series. Well, I can celebrate that the whole four-part series is coming to an end, I promise. What was I thinking? This has been uh, another example of uh, overly ambitious hopes of being able to more clearly define who we are. And as I have said before, the deeper I get into it, the deeper it becomes. And when I do a deep dive into the chapters of Genesis, these first three chapters that we have looked at to try to discover the depth of the well, I find, as I said, that it is bottomless, as is the whole Bible. Not in the shallow end of things, not in that end where our modern assumptions of historical and scientific proof texting, texting swim and move around, not in that place that we feel like we have to absolutely understand it and, and read it literally and infallibly. I'm talking about the depth of things, the, the timeless truth of things, the wisdom of things. I'm talking about the narrative and the power of it that is simply not history, but is a timeless was, is, and ever shall be presentation. It was true, it is true, and it ever will be true, whether it's scientifically true or not. And if we're able and willing to dive into that depth of understanding, into that dark well, without trying to prove it or control it, we might find there at the bottom, this is an old, an old poem of David White's, we might find there at the bottom the treasure, the bright treasure waiting for us to discover it. To me, this is what makes the Bible a living human document. We have brains, we have hearts, we have souls, we have reason. We have words to use to make sense of things, to, to, to read and reveal and speak the timeless truths about who God is and especially who we are as we think we are. So from this morning's passage in Genesis 3, I will summarize a little bit from last week to catch you up. First couple is living blissfully in the garden vulnerably innocent without shame and clothes, freely giving themselves to each other and to their vocation of tilling and caring for the land. Then, as is always the case, in every good story, the pot plot thickens and the crisis erupts. And it does so with this serpent voice of temptation not Satan, not the devil, just a literary need to have a voice break into them 
to bring the voice of temptation and anxiety. And that, that serpent voice, that, that temptation serpent voice is the voice that they began to listen to and be conditioned by to help them all of a sudden discover that, you know what, things aren't quite so perfect here after all. I'm anxious. I'm anxious when I walk back that, by that tree, both trees really, but especially that tree of knowledge. I'm anxious that I don't have full knowledge. The serpent keeps feeding it. And asks the question, did God say you can't eat? And Eve says, well, God said we can't eat and we're not supposed to touch it. But she didn't know because all she knew was what Adam had told her. The woman and the man, excuse me, I'm not using their names yet for a reason. And after a while, they begin to deal with their anxiety enough to know that, you know what, maybe we can eat from that tree. That's going to hurt. So they do. She first and then hands it to Adam. And all that time, there's never any conversation. There's never any thoughtfulness. There's never any process to look back and say, wait a minute, is this a good idea? There's never any encouragement of God's presence or the awareness of God's moral order, don't eat of that tree. They just react to the anxious servant's voice that you will get rid of all anxiety if you learn all things. You ever notice how that crafty servant, serpent voice shows up at just the right places when we're struggling over some major issue in our life, the moral issue. Misogynists blame Eve for this. They say she did it. And she coaxed Adam, the man, into it. She's the reason we have original sin. She's the problem. Refusing to understand their own confirmation bias, misogynists continue to blame women. That's the, that's the tempting servant. I promise you that's what it is. The serpent goes to the woman knowing she had only secondhand knowledge and, and, and entices her, but the man stands there silently who had first-hand knowledge and doesn't say a word. And like those other passively watching, those other officers passively watching Derek Chauvin strangle George Floyd, just standing there without saying a word, Adam just stands there and lets it happen. The man, irresponsibly mute, With this passivity, the servant has won it and injects their perfect little honeymoon with a cup of conspiracy theory full of human existential anxiety and self-doubt. And you're not good enough on your own. You need the fruit. But if this fruit will make you godlike, then why don't you go ahead and eat it? And you'll resolve all your problems. Eat of it, eat of it, eat of it. And you will not certainly die. And in a way, he was right, and in a way, not. Notice how the whole conversation turns from words about God to words about you. 
you will, you will, you will, you will, which is about me, myself, and I. And the more the language and conversation becomes about me, myself, and I, the more the anxiety is increased. I had a good friend, he's a preacher. Joanna knows him, his first name's Ted. Ted liked to say, if it's, you know, I'm not a narcissist, but if, if we're not talking about me, it ain't worth talking about. <laughs> and after those words of anxiety and, and, and more this movement inside of themselves and their, their ownness, they acted, but not in the way you see they were created to act. Instead of stopping long enough, they swallowed it. They swallowed the lie. They knew better. If there's a fall in this story, it comes before they eat the fruit. Excuse me, I need water. <laughs> the fall comes before they even eat the fruit because they gave in to the serpent's voice of temptation and questioned their humanity. So, like Icarus flying too close to the bright light of self-absorption, the heat melts the waxy cover on their eyes, and when they open them, they see themselves for the first time as being both good and evil. And they are ashamed. And, and they hastily cover themselves with a fig leaf pasty which like every other facade, Ouijans or not, that we try to cover ourselves with, it doesn't do the trick. We gotta look in the mirror. That was last week. This week, the inevitable follows. Beginning in verse eight, now I'm going to read the text and commentate on it as I'm reading it. I know that's not particularly Presbyterian, but get over it. <laughs> then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, as if it were something they did every night. How tender is that? As if, as if God enjoyed the company of the humans as much as they must have and should have enjoyed God's. And the man and his wife heard God walking and hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Case can be made, we've been in hiding ever since. The Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? That question I left you with last week of God's continuing to search for us, no matter where we are. Where are you? And he said, I, he said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, which means I was completely vulnerable and impotent. So I hid. 
God said, who told you? Who told you that you were naked? This is so tender. God's response is not anger. It's not, who told you you were naked? It is hurt. It's sadness. Who told you you were naked? They broke down and they broke the deal. They blew off their vows and God's steadfast love, his chesed, which actually is the same word as the she-camel who gives up her calf when the calf is taken in the middle of the night to be weaned. It is the same sound as the she-camel's deep groaning of grief, chesed, which is the same word in Hebrew for God's steadfast love. God's loving heart is sad and hurt and asks, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to? If you've ever been caught doing something that you know is wrong, maybe you break your spouse's heart with an indiscretion, you cook the books a little at the office for a couple of thousand dollar break, whatever. If you, ever, if you ever do it and get caught, don't respond like this first couple. Just man up and own it. When God sees what's happening and asks if they had eaten from the tree, the man blames everyone but himself. In verse 12, listen to this, the woman, right? The woman did it. But even worse, the woman you gave to be with me, you did it. You're the problem. She gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Eve under the bus, God under Eve. And then the Lord looks at the woman and says to her, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent, the serpent tricked me and I ate it. It's the serpent's fault. Isn't that called scapegoating or victimhood or blame? You put the word in, right? There we are. We're coming up with an excuse. We're not claiming our human responsibility for our actions. And there it is. So now what? Now what? By all rights, God should have taken their life. That was the deal. If you eat of it, you will die. But God, being God, is also a God of grace. All parties have been convicted by the ultimate Supreme Court. God brings down the gavel, only it is a gavel of grace as much as it is a gavel of anything. And all the sentences that they receive are way more lenient than you would expect. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you among the animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
By the way, the Bible uses all kinds and forms of literature as they write. They use saga and legend and, and parable and history and story and, and even fable. And I think, I think a lot of what comes now is a little bit like fable. You know, the, 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 the book, Why the Leopard Got His Spots, you know, Kip, Kipling. That sort of makes, tries to help us understand why things are, why, why a turtle has a hard shell, and you, you go back and you make up a story for it. That's kind of what I think is happening here with why there are snakes. Said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall lead all the days of your life, and everyone will have a phobia about you. And then he says also, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will strike your head and ye shall strike his heel. Then to the woman, God says, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. They call it labor for a reason. Apparently, the pain in childbirth serves a purpose, biologically, evolutionally. So maybe what God is giving them is an even deeper sense of being able to survive through history. Pain in childbirth is a good thing. It bonds the mother to the child and the child to the mother, apparently. And pain in childbirth for the mother is also the fact that just because you have pain when they are born does not mean that you don't have pain for the rest of your life. <laughs> you fear for them. You, you are anxious for them. You are never free from them again. Right? And that's a good thing to a point. Notice this is not really a punishment, but a statement of normality. Especially this one about, golly, people get a lot of, they get a lot of bucks off of this one. You know, um, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Dad gum right, Anita, you better take this Bible seriously. <laughs> I can hear her now. This is, this is what God is saying is not normal. Normal is being human together in tandem, parallel as they were in the, in the garden. This is about what it looks like when things are bad. Women are subject to their husbands. Got it? And then God turns to the man Adam. First time his name has been said in this text. Just the man before, man and woman. God turns to Adam and says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. 
I mean, what's new about that? Isn't that what every farmer has to deal with? Good land or not, that is what it means to grow crops, to till and farm. That's just the nature of things. It's a condition to struggle with the land. And then in verse 19, by the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. I love that part, you shall eat bread. Isn't that what communion is? And out of the dust you have been taken from dust and blown into life by God's breath, and to dust we shall return, which are the last words we say at every internment. And if there's any punishment here, it is that we have lost our immortality. But I gotta tell you, from where I stand, the last thing in the world I would ever want is to have a heaven like earth as it stands now. It's like, um, it's like deja vu Groundhog Day all over again for eternity. And then this touching, really moving verse in 20, Adam, Adam now has come to himself, has discovered himself in his, in his full humanity as both less than God and, and a little higher than, the, than the, the beasts. He's discovered his place again, and he names his wife for the first time she gets a name. And in the Bible, when you receive a name, that is the ultimate blessing. It defines who you are as a, as a presence, and it defines God's relationship with you, and Eve means the mother of the living. There's a lot of good stuff going on here during this sentencing. So the Lord God banished him, it says, them from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life so that they could not enter it again. This is the word of the Lord. What now? What now now? What now that we have been exiled from the garden. God, a loving and gracious parent, steps in and brings order out of the chaos of hubris and arrogance of the first humans, and he does so by searching them out, not letting us go, giving us consequences to help us learn about responsibility and what it means to grow up, and those consequences are as much full of grace as discipline. And it allows them to know that they are as deeply loved as they are also punished. I used to get switched when I was a kid. I know that sounds like sadistic abuse by parents, but in those days, that's what everybody did in Birmingham, Alabama. They switched their kids. And to make it worse, my mama would always make us go out and cut the switch off the 
the death bush to get hit with. One time I was out, it was 20 degrees, and I was out in the backyard playing with a hose. And I was like sprinkling this hose all over the grass, thinking, you know, if I, if I get enough water on, on this yard, it's going get, to get high enough to, to become ice, and then it could be like a, could be like a skating rink. I'd just gone to a checkers hockey game and I was fascinated with skating rinks. So I guess I'm, I'm nine, maybe same year, uh, the Ouija year. And, and, and my mother comes out the door and, and says, Stevie, which is what she called me. Don't anyone of you ever call me that. <laughs> Stevie, what are you doing? Have you lost your mind? And something got into me. I still don't know what it was, but it scares me to death. Something got into me, and as she's coming at me, I turned the hose on her. <laughs> she grabbed my arm, yanked me over to the bush, the switch bush. I cut one. I knew she was going to blister me. When I got in the house, no way, Jose. I took off. I ran in my room, got under my bed. So far, she could not reach me. She tried to crawl over and get me, couldn't do it. And I'm sitting there, and she's getting madder and madder. And finally, she gets, she gets to the place where she gives up, and she starts laughing. And I almost fell for it. <laughs> she gets on the bed and starts laughing. And I'm, I'm like there, oh, what does this mean? And she goes, okay. You want to play that way? That's fine. We'll just wait till your daddy comes home. <laughs> my daddy came home. I was scared to death of my daddy. My daddy came home. He, he said, okay, we're going to handle this, so let's go to my room. And we go to my room, and he said, I want you to take your pants down. And I did. He took off his belt buckle, his belt. And he said, now, I want, you to, I want you to scream like you're getting really hurt. And I said, okay. And he moved to the side, and he whacked the bed three times with his belt to make my mother think that he had hit me. But he hadn't. And I'm like, wah, wah. <laughs> and I felt worse about that grace moment of my daddy than I would have ever felt getting spanked. When we talk about what God does for us when we are fallen or sinful, we have to turn to this passage from 2 Corinthians, which is, I think, one of my favorites. It goes, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. Ah, God was right. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and who was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. No one from a worldly point of view. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. God, you get, you get, you get the, this new creation in us has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Not by demanding a substitutionary atonement body of blood, but by giving of himself over to us, even unto the cross, to show us how far God will go to bring us back. And in doing so, has reconciled us to himself through Christ, again, given us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them, And he has committed to us this message, this message of reconciliation. This is who we are. If you want to write something on your your minister's vision of what you're looking for, you're looking for someone who understands this, that this is the mission of the church. We are called to be Christ's ambassadors, witnesses, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I can't think of a time in my 69 years when that passage is not, is is more needed than now to be ambassadors of God's reconciliation. We are not here, we do not know God's love and reconciliation unless some human being in our life has, has given themselves enough of, of themselves to us to show us what reconciliation looks like. As some human being has forgiven us for something we've done, we do not know the power of that. You know the Weegians? Into the year fourth grade, Ms. Johnson, I was a terrible student. I was a terrible student. I had the fidgets. They call it ADD now. I couldn't sit still. I was a terrible student. And I, I was like, I was a nobody in this whole fourth grade year. And, and the, the big auditorium fills up for the end of year, con, you know, conglomeration of giving awards. And I know I'm not going to get any, any of them. And so the, they also start calling out the safety patrol. And, you know, and, and I knew Ed and Ed were going to be the first two people called. And they were, and so was Emily. And I knew I wasn't going to be, and I slid down deeper and deeper into my chair for the shame and humiliation I was going to feel for being another nobody. But Ms. Johnson called my name. She called Steve Goyer. And it was an out-of-body experience. She, in that one moment, reconciled me to myself. Isn't that what we're called to do for each other? End of series.